2 Timothy chapter number 2. I'm going to try to do something I've never done before and preach a short message. And um, Well, I've tried before, but I'm going to try something I've never successfully accomplished, which is to preach a short sermon. But we're going to do our best tonight. We're going to try to mind the Lord. And part of the reason it's a little bit shorter of a sermon is because it is part of a larger thought that if the Lord will allow us to, we may spend a little time over the coming weeks developing. Second Timothy chapter number 2. And let's read the first two verses of this chapter, and uh, then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask Him to meet these needs in our, our life. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1. Uh, Paul writing under inspiration of the Holy Ghost to the young pastor Timothy, he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to get to be here with your people, Lord. It warms my heart. Uh, It provides a salve, a healing to the Spirit. Just be able to uh, gather here and to rejoice in you and to meet with those that love you and that have prioritized you in their life. And I just pray that, Father, you would help us tonight to have our hearts surrendered unto you and unto thy word. I pray for these requests that have been given. And Lord, so many of these things, really all of them, if they're to be done in the appropriate way, are beyond our capability. Lord, even if we could take them into our hands and try to accomplish it, we couldn't do with it what you can. And so, Father, we just ask tonight that you would meet these needs. Lord, there's health needs. Uh, there's uh, people whose, whose well-being needs to be touched and raised up and fortified and strengthened. And uh, Lord, there's financial needs, no doubt, and there's... Uh, family needs, and above all, Lord, there were several tonight that mentioned lost family members. And Lord, how pressing, how preeminent that need is in our life that we'd see them reach with the gospel of Christ. Use us to do it. And Father, I pray that you would uh, meet their heart's needs with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for this time. I pray that you bless the preaching now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In our text tonight, of which really we've only read a small portion, if we were going to read everything I'd love to talk about tonight, and I'm going to have to be patient and try to talk to it over, talk about it over the next few weeks, we'd have to read the entirety of the chapter. Uh, this, of course, is the second epistle that Paul writes to the young man Timothy, and in it he exhorts him and charges him to remain steadfast in the work of the Lord. Let me say that all of us need to be mindful to remain steadfast in the will and work of the Lord. We're living in a day where attrition is is endemic to society. People giving up, people walking away, people laying down, people quitting in the work of God is something that has become absolutely uh, paramount and absolutely pervasive throughout society. You see it everywhere around us. Now again, let me tell you, I'm not preaching to you all, because you're all here tonight. Somebody say amen to that. And I'm not preaching to those that may be otherwise detained and physically unable to be uh, here tonight. I'm just telling you, our society is in a place where a lot of folks are walking away from the things of God. And it's a troubling thing. And Paul, even in his day, of course, was watching the same thing take place. He spoke of the fact that there were some that went out from amongst them. There were some that had uh, walked, and he said, I tell you now, even weeping, that they walk with us no more. And so this is not a new phenomenon, what we see as a reality in the church today. And the truth of the matter is, it can be something that infects your life and mine if we allow it to. Uh, You and I are but one bad decision away from being in as bad a shape as any of those folks that we pray for and think about and and weep over. and, And sadly, they're sort of used in our hearts and minds as a cautionary tale. 
Ain't none of us but just one decision, one moment of, of forfeiture away from being in that same situation. And so Paul, in writing in 2 Timothy, his chief goal seems to be to undergird this young Christian, to encourage him to not walk away, to not lay down, to not give up, to not yield, to not capitulate to the world, but instead to press forward in the work and will of God. And throughout this epistle, we find that he discloses some uh, familiar passages, we could say, but also some foundational truths that will equip Timothy in doing that. Here in chapter 2 in particular, we find that the Apostle Paul gives us seven different descriptions of the life of the believer, or seven different stations that the believer occupies in their life. I want you to notice them with me. We find down in verse number 3 that the Christian is spoken of as a soldier. He says in verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It would do you and I well to recognize tonight that we're in the middle of a battle. And this battle that I'm talking about, and I'm not saying there's not a culture war taking place, and I'm not saying there's not political upheaval and political strife taking place, and I'm not saying that there's not even class and economic strife and friction that is that is uh, existing around us. But I'm saying for the Christian, we understand that there is one arena, there is one battlefield that towers above all others in its importance and in its relevance to our life, and that's the spiritual battle that's taking place. We're in a spiritual battle. And listen, you don't have to make leaders and public figures the avatar for that spiritual battle for it to be a spiritual battle either. I'm saying there's spiritual warfare before this past election. There's spiritual warfare before the election four years ago. There was spiritual warfare before the election, the two elections and three elections and four elections and five I'm saying there's always been spiritual warfare. And it's much bigger than what we see on the evening news. It's much bigger than what we see in the political arena unfolding in uh, around us. This spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare is lived in your life and in my life as well as it is on the world stage. So he describes us as a soldier. Down in verse number 5, uh, the apostle says this, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. And I use this word, the Christian here is described as a sprinter. You could maybe even say, in a more broad sense, he's an athlete, but the picture before us seems to be that of an Olympian, someone that is engaged in a contest. And The Apostle Paul talks about how that all of the striving doesn't matter if it's not done lawfully. Can I tell you something? What we do is not the only thing that matters. How we do it matters too. I believe that tonight. I believe how we do what we do matters. I remember my pastor saying years ago, and I don't guess I really understood what he was saying when he said it, uh, but I've come to understand it more in the years since. Somebody had made a comment about the decline of, of their church attendance. And uh, somebody was asking him about it, and he said, they, they said to him, they said, you know how to fill this place up. And he said, I do. I know how to empty it too. <laughs> And I didn't understand what he meant at the time, but what he was saying is this, if I wanted to, I could do the things it takes to put people in all these pews. He said, but I also know what it is that drives people away from these pews. And what he was essentially saying is that it's not just what we do, it's how we do it. There's a manner in ministry, and that manner matters. There's a standard in the work of God, in the service of God, and that standard matters. We don't just strive, we need to strive lawfully. In other words, we need to strive in accordance and obedience 
to the commands of God. It matters not just what we do, but how we do it. And then down in verse number 6, he says this, The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Here the Christian is likened to a sower. And in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is essentially exhorting uh, uh, Timothy to be the first person that partakes in the labor and fruit of the things that he preaches. And what he is essentially saying to him is if you're going to preach these things, you've got to live of these things. He's talking about sincerity in the life of ministry and in the work of God. And can I tell you something? Uh, people around us, and particularly lost people, they can tell if we're sincere or not. It's amazing to me. A lost person can be hoodwinked by an actor or an athlete or a politician, but they'll pay extra close attention to the testimony of a Christian. And it seems as though it's hard to fool. You've heard the saying before, you can't fool dogs and children. Well, as a Christian, if you're not sincere... Uh, and if you don't hold yourself to a higher standard, and if you don't live a life above reproach, uh, then uh, you counter down, but the lost will recognize that. So the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Down in verse 15, this is a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, the apostle says, study to show thyself approved unto God. And he calls us a workman. And says we ought to be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here the believer is likened unto a skilled laborer. And what it's saying is that as we approach the truth of the Word of God, we ought to approach it with the meticulous obsession of a craftsman that is directly invested in the outcome of that labor. When we approach the Word of God, it shouldn't be in a flippant way, but we ought to recognize that what we do with the Word of God will determine what God can do with us. And that how we treat the Word of God is a direct commentary and testimony about our respect for it. What you learn when you see someone that does shoddy work, what you've learned is that they don't care about the work. Uh, when you look at someone that's done a poor job at something, it tells you that they don't care about the job that they've done. When Christians are ignorant of the Word of God or mishandle the Word of God, that tells the world, it tells God that they're really not that interested in the Word of God. So it describes us as a skilled laborer. And then in verse 21, it says this, if a man therefore purge himself from these, it's talking about things that are that are displeasing, dishonoring to the Lord, says he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Here the believer is likened unto a sanctified vessel. A cup, as it were. Uh, a utensil that's to be used by the master, by the Lord, for his glory, for his honor, for his purpose. Uh, how much stress would it save us? You living in stressful times? Give me a witness if you are. How much stress would it save us if we recognize that we ain't nothing but just a cup in the Master's hand? If He wants us empty, He'll empty us. If He wants us full, He'll fill us up. If He wants us sitting on this shelf or that table or whatever He wants out of our life, the only thing we have to make sure is that we're clean and we are placed in His hand. That's all. A sanctified vessel. And then in verse number 24, uh, the Apostle says that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men apt to teach and patient. The believer is likened unto a servant. Now this might seem almost uh, to be a, boy, how do we even say it tonight? Uh, it seems almost not like a, an analogy, Brother Kim, but just merely a label, just a descriptor, because the life of, of servitude to the Lord and the life of being a disciple of Christ are so synonymous one with another. But how soon do we forget that what we've really been called to do is to serve? To serve the Lord, to serve one another. Our job, we're not here to serve us and our interests. We're here to serve one another. I think if there was anything about New Testament Christianity that would look radical to us, 
were we to see the Christianity that Christ walked amongst men, it would be the attitude, spirit, and theme of servitude. I think we would imagine if we walked into the twelve disciples and the Lord Jesus, we'd see them all gathered around trying to figure out how to please Him. But I think instead we'd see Him running around trying to figure out how to serve them. We'd see Him with a basin and a towel girt about Him. We'd see Him breaking bread and dispensing. We would see Him meeting the needs of those around Him. And it could be Christianity looks less like Christ today because it has fewer servants in it. So I think when we read through this, we find this sevenfold description. But now we've not mentioned the one we're going to preach on tonight. The believer is described in verse 3 as a soldier, verse 5 as a sprinter, verse 6 as a sower, verse 15 as a skilled laborer, verse 21 as a sanctified vessel, and verse 24 as a servant. But before any of those are disclosed to us, in verse number 1, we find the believer described as a son. The Bible says in verse number 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you that fundamentally the relationship of the believer to God is a familial relationship. He called Abraham his friend, but he calls us his son, his daughter, his child. The sooner we grasp this reality and what it implies for us in our Christian walk, the sooner we'll be equipped to live the life that God has called us to. God could have saved us the way He saved us, but just called us a friend, but He did not do that. He instead inducted us into His family. He adopted us into His lineage. He made us His child. And it is that to which the Apostle Paul gives great emphasis here. And I want you to notice three things here, and there's probably three million things we could say about it that time won't permit. But I want you to notice three things, and they... Break down the text quite neatly. Let's notice them together tonight. The first thing we find, really in the first four verse or first four words of this verse, the Apostle Paul says, Thou therefore my son. Let me say the first thing we notice is the record of sonship. Now I'm going to try to be careful in how I handle this text because there's something Paul's saying, and I believe, and I, boy, I, I want to be careful here. I think there's something that Paul's saying, and I think it is what the Holy Ghost is saying. But I also think there's something the Holy Ghost is saying that maybe Paul didn't even understand whether he was saying or not. In other words, Paul is talking about a relationship between him and Timothy. But you and I recognize, and maybe Paul was, was aware and intended to sort of infuse this, this statement with this meaning, I don't know. But we understand that Paul's talking about himself and Timothy. But we understand that though that is true, and every one of us in our life we have a Paul, every one of us in our life we are someone's Timothy. And let me say this, every one of us probably, if we've lived any amount of time, is someone else's Paul, and they are our Timothy. And that relationship is emphasized here. We understand that there is a greater relationship of sonship that exists in the life of the believer. And that's not being the son of whoever it is that is our father in the faith, but being the son of him that is the father above. In other words, we're not just son to somebody that invested in our life spiritually, but we're also son to the one that made the greatest investment in our life spiritually, the one that sent his son to die for us on the cross. So notice a few things here. First, let me say a word about the form of this birth or this sonship. Now, a lot of commentators have disputed and debated and argued, and a lot of that ain't worth even the time it takes to describe it, about what Paul is, is talking about in this passage when he calls Timothy his son. 
is he saying that Timothy is his biological son? Now, there's other places in the Bible that Paul uses language like this when he's talking about Onesimus in the book of Philemon. He says that he had begotten him in in bonds. And when he talks about the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians, he said you've got many instructors in Christ, uh, but you have not many fathers in the faith. When Paul talks about uh, Timothy being his son, he's not talking about a biological relationship. Rather, he's talking about a spiritual relationship. It's been the topic of discussion for ages, whether or not Paul had any kind of family, whether or not he had children. Some folks contend that for him to have been a part of the Sanhedrin, to be a part, to be a Pharisee, he would have had to have been married, have children. It's entirely possible, and the Holy Ghost doesn't give us insight into that. But one of the things we can say, I think without any question, is that whoever Paul's sons were, they weren't Timothy. Whoever Timothy's daddy was, he was not Paul. Because the Holy Ghost gives us clear instruction about who Timothy's father was. It says in Acts chapter number 16, verse number 1, uh, about the Apostle Paul, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed. But his father was a Greek. And we can read in the book of Philippians and learn that Paul is not a Greek. He is a Hebrew. In fact, he said he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. We know exactly what Paul's ethnic lineage was. But Timothy's father was a Greek. And the Bible goes on to say uh, that him would uh, Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So it seems pretty apparent from Acts 16 that we know, though we do not know his name, we know that Timothy's father was a Greek. We know Paul was not a Greek. So the form of this birth is not biological. It is a spiritual birth. Now somebody's going to say, Preacher, that's good. I already knew that. I could have read the reference in my study Bible. I could have learned that. Yeah, but here's what I want to emphasize to you. There's more than one type of family. There's more than one type of relationship. There's more than one type of father. And there's more than one type of sonship. When Paul emphasizes this, and by the way, elsewhere he does describe Timothy's lineage. He doesn't describe his Greek father, but he does describe his Jewish mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. But the reason he even brings them up is because of the faith that they had. In other words, the greatest thing we can do in the life of our biological children, in the life of anybody whom God gives us an open door with, is to inject into their life the truth of Jesus Christ. We're bonding ourselves to them and them to us in a way deeper than blood can allow. So we see the form of his birth that's mentioned here. Now let me make a second thing, a second note here, and that is the fact of his birth. Some of this is going to sound a little elementary, but I want you to stick with me. We're headed somewhere. Uh, A person that is a son is a person that has been born. Can you agree with that statement? Can we get on the same page tonight? Is there anyone, save one, that was ever a son before they were born? The fact of sonship is a product and testimony of a birth. My sons, our relationship really, I mean, I guess their relationship with their mama began when she felt them kick, but my relationship with them began, I don't know, maybe six, eight months after they was born, I finally held them. And uh, no, I've said this before that, you know, uh, the, the moment that a mother feels a child move is the moment that that child becomes their child and then the mother. But I think for fathers, it's probably the first moment they hold them, that it really uh, rings true. It becomes real, something 
fundamentally shifts and changes and transforms in your life. But we understand that every person's life begins with a birth. And if a person's status as a son exists, it exists only because a person has been born. As we said, there's only been one person that was ever a son before they were born, and that was the Son of God. That's why the book of Isaiah says, unto us a son is given. It doesn't say unto us a son is born. It says unto us a son is given. He was already a son before he was born. And you say, preacher, that's good and everything. What does it have to do with our text? Well, here's what I want you to understand. Paul is acknowledging and recognizing that there was a transformative moment of new birth in Timothy's life. For a person to be a Christian, they have to have that moment of new birth. They have to be born again into the family of God. I've heard people say, and you probably have too, I've always been a Christian. But that cannot be true of anybody. Nobody's always been a Christian. Uh, There was a point where you got born again, and there was a point prior to that point where you were lost and on your way to hell. And if you've not had that take place in your life, it's not because you've always been saved, it's because you're still lost. So we see that Paul sort of implies here a birth that has taken place. He calls Timothy his son. Now, here is the question at hand. What is the nature of this birth? We know it is not biological. We could say that most assuredly the birth that has transpired in Timothy's life is spiritual. Here's the question I have. It appears to me when I read Acts 16 that by the time that Paul gets to Derby and Lystra, Timothy's already a disciple of Jesus Christ. We understand what he says about Onesimus is pretty explicit language. He said, I've begotten him in my bonds. Uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave that had ran away from his master whenever he uh, crossed paths with, with Paul. And we have every reason to believe with Paul's language in the book of Philemon that he was a lost man when he left and that he had been won to Christ under the ministry of Paul. Certainly the church at Corinth did not exist until Paul planted that church. But Timothy's a man that has known God before he ever knew Paul. So what then function does Paul serve in his life? Well, we see the form of this birth and the fact of this birth, but then notice the facilitator of this sonship. I'm not necessarily sure that it was Paul that led him to the Lord, but I do seem to acknowledge this and recognize it in Scripture, uh, that certainly Paul was the first person that took an interest spiritually in Timothy's life. The only other uh, man that we find in Timothy's life that's mentioned prior to the Apostle Paul is Timothy's father. And he's mentioned in almost a passing cursory way. His name is not even disclosed to us. And it (coughs) would appear to us that the only reason he is mentioned is because he had withheld the liberty of Timothy's mother to have him circumcised. So it appears that the first man that ever takes an interest in Timothy's life is the Apostle Paul. And for that reason, he describes himself as a father in the faith to Timothy and as Timothy being his son. Can I tell you tonight that every single one of us, we have someone that took an interest in us. You and I are children of God tonight because somebody shared the gospel with us. We all heard the gospel from someone, somewhere, in some way. You've heard me say this before, that when I got saved, I was alone in my bedroom and No one led me to the Lord. That's true. Uh, However, my entire life I had heard the gospel. I'd have to look at every Bible teacher I had, every every chapel preacher. I grew up in a Christian school. Every chapel preacher that we had, every children's church worker that we ever had, every single Sunday school teacher that I had had in my life that had taught me the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You too have someone in your life. Maybe you can trace a direct lineage. Maybe you can look directly backwards and say, this is the person that's the reason that I'm saved. Maybe you can't. Maybe you'll have to wait to heaven to find out who that is. But can I say to you tonight that we all owe a debt. We all owe a debt to those that went before us and loved us enough to give us the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we find the record of his sonship. And Paul is essentially saying to him that uh, we have a special kinship and relationship with each other because I am the one that invested into your life spiritually. We don't necessarily have reason to believe that he was the one that had won Timothy to Christ. Uh, but that, by the way, is not always, boy, how can I say this right? Uh, that is not always the most lasting influence that exists in a person's life. In other words, you may not be the person that won someone to Christ, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a lasting impact in their life. I would say that the vast majority of people, if you were to raise your hands tonight, if I was to ask how many of you saved at Wall Ridge Baptist Church, it would be very few of them. Most of us were saved somewhere else. Uh, by the same token, some of y'all would acknowledge that there have been churches you've been a part of before you were ever here at Wallridge and men that have invested in your life and they weren't the person that led you to Christ, but they were someone that looked at you and said that's somebody that needs the Lord in their life. We all have a responsibility. So we see the record of sonship. Number two, I want you to notice the resources of sonship. Now, Paul says, thou therefore my son, but he doesn't stop there. He gives him an exhortation. And he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, here I would say we do not deviate from the theme that Paul's presenting. But I would say that we expand beyond it for a brief moment. And we could acknowledge tonight that though we have a relationship with our spiritual fathers, in other words, people that invested in our life, and I do and you do and we all do in that Relationship is meaningful. It shouldn't be cast away lightly. We recognize there is a more meaningful existence and plane and dynamic of sonship. And that's the sonship that we have directly with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he says you need to recognize, talking to Timothy, that you have some things because you're a son. Not because you're a son of me spiritually, Timothy, but because you're a son of God spiritually. Now, what are those things, those resources that we have? By the way, I, I didn't mention this, but I'm going to mention it now. You know, he, he goes on in verse 3 and, and he tells him to endure hardness. This is counsel, this is preaching, this is truth that is built for hard times. I don't know how hard of times we have in front of us, but I know the Word of God is fit for it, whatever we're facing. There may be days in the past and there may even be days presently where you and I have enough leisure and liberty and freedom and comfort that we don't need these truths as desperately or we need them desperately, but we're not as aware of how desperately we need them. But there's coming days in our life, I fear, when we're going to have to hold strong to these things. So he tells them to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And within this, we have three resources that the believer has. Notice with me, the first is status. The very fact of sonship is a statement of status. It's a special thing to be a son or a daughter. When I tell you I have two sons, I'm not telling you I have two million. I'm telling you I have two. I'm not saying any and everybody can be one of them. I'm saying I've got two. And the two have names and identities. And they have my heart. And they live in my home. And they live in my pantry. Amen. <laughs> That's a status thing. I'm saying not anybody and everybody's my son. Can I tell you, not any and everybody's a son of God. 
It's a special thing to be a child of God. Now, it's true that uh, to them which believe in Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. It's true that anybody can be a child of God. But recognize this. Listen, just because Christianity has been paid for and the offer extended to any and all, that doesn't make it any less high and holy of a privilege to be able to say, I'm a child of the God of eternity. In fact, we could say this tonight, there's more folks walking around that are not His child than there are that are His child. Man, how often we sort of beg at the feet, beg for the table scraps of recognition of this world when all the while God looks down and calls us His child. What a blessed thing it is to be a child of God. And what does that constitute? Well, he talks about the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you and I understand what grace is. The old acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, I think is a pretty fit definition. But we could say this, that grace is embodied in the substitutionary act of Christ on Calvary, whereby He stepped into our place and let us step into His place. It is the justification that causes God to view us like He views Jesus. It's that great swap, that great substitute. So that when we talk about status, when we talk about position, when we talk about sonship, we're not talking about something that's second class, demoted or denigrated. But we're talking about the very highest status that not just any human, but any creature of God, and we could even go a step beyond that, we could say that though no creature of God naturally exists in this condition, God Himself in the person of the Son existed in this condition. And God has elevated us as poor, lost, rotten, wicked sinners to a place that no member of God's creation has ever uh, occupied. We stand in the very place of God Himself. Uh, You know, the Bible says this about Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. Now, if what I'm saying tonight sounds a little extreme, can I just remind you that Paul himself said that we are fellow laborers with God. said about Jesus Christ that we are joint heirs of God with Him. So I would say this, that it's a high status you and I occupy tonight, for we sit in the very place of God Himself as being a son of God. Paul says this in Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. In other words, one of the greatest resources you and I have tonight is that we can call ourselves the Son of God, but even beyond that, we can look up, we can call God our Father. What a great status we have, that we can communicate with God, that we can talk with God, that He'll hear us and listen to us. Number two, we find not only uh, status as being a resource, but sufficiency as being a resource. Uh, we could maybe say supply as being a resource. His provision, uh, His uh, supply of our life's needs. Notice that it says the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, when he talks about that thorn that he prayed and asked God to take away, he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. But he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, when we speak of the grace of God, we're speaking of all of the riches that come along with that status. Uh, everything the, the psalmist said that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Uh, the book of Colossians says about Jesus Christ that all things were created 
by Him and for Him. And you and I are joint heirs of His. There is no need that you and I have in our life that He does not have the sufficiency in His grace to meet that need. Uh, it's one thing to know <clears throat> what the... Well, how do I say that? It's one thing to have the resource. It's another thing to know the source of all resources. I'm not saying you in your life and me and my life will always have a superabundance of the things that we desire, but I'm saying we'll never be wanting for our basic fundamental needs. For God will always provide for us those things. Both, by the way, temporally. Let me say also beyond that, spiritually. Spiritually. I'm more keenly aware of my spiritual bankruptcy today and in these days than I guess I ever have. I'm more aware of how weak I am. I'm more aware of, of, of how compromised of a person I am, how incapable of a person that I am, how not up to the task of this thing of serving God and living for God that I am how bankrupt my faith is, how bankrupt my devotion is. I'm more aware of it now today than I guess I have ever been. But within that, I'm also made keenly aware that there's never been a moment that those things, when they've been needed and when I've been surrendered to the Lord, have been lacking in my life. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean to say this. I'm insufficient in every way. But He has always been all-sufficient in every way. And everything that I need to be and am not, He has been for me. He's been it for me. So I see His sufficiency, the sufficiency of sonship. What does the Son have? The Son has what the Father has. Uh, when you were raising kids, and if you still are raising kids, all joking aside, everything in that house uh, belongs to them, unless it'll hurt them, unless it'll destroy them, uh, or unless it's real expensive and they'll break it. But by and large... Uh, it, it's theirs, and you get to a place in life. And uh, I asked Dad the other day, we were talking, I said, you going to clean all this junk out of your house? I said, no, I'm going to leave it for you to clean out. It's going to all be yours one day. <laughs> Everything that the Father has, the Son has, it's all one and the same. You know why? Because we're heirs. We're heirs. So I see the sufficiency, and then number three, I see the strength that's mentioned. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I really wish I had, I don't know, a bunch more time than I've got to talk about this. But Paul describes the dynamic of accessing the strength of God for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That passage that we just read where he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. He goes on to make this statement, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. What a strange thing to say. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Why would he say such a thing as that? How contrary is that to the concept and the ideology of the world today? We live in a world, and I, and I want to be careful how I say this, because there ain't none of us wants to be afflicted. There ain't none of us wants to fall on hard times. There's none of us wants to suffer. I don't, you don't, none of us do. And I don't think Paul wanted those things. But think about how radically different Paul's attitude is compared to the world around us today. When it seems as though man is living in constant terror of a disruption of his comfort and leisure. When it seems as though the most terrifying prospect in our life is the disruption of the status quo that we've enjoyed for so long. Now, I'm not saying I don't fear that. I do, and I bet you fear it too. 
Think about how Paul faces these things. And I find it interesting. He uses the word infirmities. Maybe it's because we all just, it's all we think about and talk about and, and, and read about and everything today is sickness and disease and infirmities and weakness and affliction. But he says, in all these, I take pleasure. He didn't say, I want these things. But he said, having them, I take pleasure in them. There'll be a lot of things in your life and mine that we won't have prayed for. We won't have asked for. And we'll directly pray and ask God to take away. Paul was praying and asking God to take this away. But it's interesting to note that all those things can be true, while at the same time we can take pleasure in those things. Uh, you know, uh, the trying to think of a good example of this. Um, and I may just have to trust the Holy Ghost to make it real in your heart. There are certain things that happen that I don't like, but I can find a certain degree of pleasure in. For instance, if I see someone I don't like fall down, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying there's a certain degree of pleasure I can take in it, right? Um, give you, for instance, every year when Georgia and Alabama play, I, on the one hand, I'm disinterested because I hate both of them. But on the other hand, I'm pleased because I know I'll be guaranteed to see at least one of them lose. Saying there can be an unpleasurable, unpalatable thing that you still take pleasure in. Paul's not saying he wants these things. And he's not even saying he enjoys these things at a fundamental level. But he is saying, I've found something pleasurable in them. What is it that's pleasurable? He says, for when I'm weak, then am I strong. Paul had recognized that the great handicap in his life was his own personal reliance on self. That when he tried to do things himself, they always failed. And when he let God do things in his life, they always succeeded. Paul has now been put in a position where he cannot do for himself. And while that's unpleasurable, he says, this one pleasure I found in it, it has become a lot easier to sit back and let God do for me what I cannot do for myself. Where does the strength come from? The strength comes from the grace. The strength doesn't come from the faith. The strength comes from the grace. It comes from allowing the provision and resource of God spiritually to be the preeminent thing in your life and what you lean on and look to. So I find the resource of sonship. But then finally, and I'll just mention these tonight because I said I was going to preach short and I'm like 35 minutes away from it no longer being a short sermon. So I want to get that done. Uh, I notice the responsibilities of sonship. Hey, being a son comes with some responsibilities. Being a child comes with some responsibilities. We had some responsibilities when I was growing up. Not a lot. I mean, if I'm to be frank, if I'm to be fair, mom and dad didn't didn't raise us harsh. And, and uh, you know, we, we had to work. But really, to be honest, dad, especially now that I, I'm an adult and I know him kind of as an adult, I'm surprised he was as patient with us as he was. But uh, there were certain things that were our responsibilities. I remember coming to an age in life and it was my responsibility to keep the yard mowed. And uh, we used to always, we had a whole, you know, array of Murray riding mowers throughout the years that we would use. You know what dad did? The moment we all moved out, he went out and bought one of those zero turns. It goes like 40 miles an hour. When he had to mow, that's what he wanted to mow with. When we were mowing, he had us out there on the old Murray. But when he was mowing... He wanted the nice zero turn. And, uh, hey, I, yeah, well, you had me mow with push mowers from time to time. I ain't going to tell all the war stories, but 
Suffice it to say, there were certain things that we had a responsibility to. Being a sonship comes, being a son comes with certain responsibilities. Now, what are those responsibilities? And here I think we find, if, if the first portion that we talked about, the record of sonship, is speaking about the relationship distinctly between Paul and Timothy. And if the second, the resources of sonship, is speaking largely about our relationship with us being a son of God and God the Father being our Father, then I would say this, that uh, the third part of it there in verse number 2, we find a perfect balance of both of those things. Both of them seem to dovetail and meet together. He says this, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, I'm aware that this is pastoral advice. But I would also say there's an application to every child of God here. What are the responsibilities of sonship? I'd say they're threefold. The first is to receive. He says, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. Our very first responsibility as a child was always to listen to our parents. Stop and think about it. Before your parents taught you anything else, they taught you to listen to them. Because they understood that anything else you would learn could only be learned by the extension of that listening and attentiveness. So the very first thing they would have taught all of us and did teach all of us is to listen when they spoke. You know, that's true spiritually as well. There's some folks that are perpetually stunted spiritually. You know why? They never learned to listen to God. If a child doesn't learn to listen, they can't learn anything else. If a child of God doesn't learn to listen to God, they can't learn anything else. How could they? The first responsibility is to hear God and to listen to God and receive what He says and to heed what He says. The very first foundational thing you can do in your Christian walk in your debt to God and your relationship to Him is have your heart open to the truth that is communicated through His Word. So the first is to receive. But then there's a second thing. He says, the, thing, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. I would say this, that the second responsibility that a son has is not only to receive, but number two, to remain. He doesn't say something similar commit thou to faithful men. He says the same commit thou to faithful men. A friend of mine made a comment the other day that I thought was profound as it relates to the contemporary movement in Christianity today. He said that it's akin to the old adage, this was my, uh, this was my grandfather's axe that he made. Uh, he said that uh, my father replaced the handle and I've replaced the blade. At the end of the day, if you change everything about it, you ain't got what you had in the first place anyway. Now, I'm not saying the axe, and this is a statement about Bible Christianity and Christianity in America. I'm not saying the axe don't get dull sometimes, but you don't throw away the blade, you sharpen it up. I'm not saying there aren't times in fundamental Christianity that things don't get a little out of whack, but you know what you do? You don't throw it away, you fix what's out of whack. And you go on. Uh, you don't throw it away and pretend like you're still wielding the same axe. By the same token, in your life and mine, one of our responsibilities to God is that we remain in the truth that God's communicated to us. Uh, more heretics have been made over the polluting of good doctrine than have been made over the receiving of bad doctrine. I'm saying this, that 
heretics have made more heretics than uh, pagans have. And we have a responsibility in our life to stay true to the truth of God's Word as it's communicated to us. This is going to get more and more difficult to do, and you'll pay a higher and higher social cost, maybe political cost, maybe financial cost, uh, in your life in the days and years to come. To simply say the things that God's Word says. There are places in our world today where the reading of the King James Bible in public is considered a hate crime. Now, I ain't talking about Saudi Arabia. I'm not talking about communist China. I'm talking about Western countries that at one time were founded on Christianity and sent Christian missionaries all over the world. Or if you stand in the streets and read a King James Bible, they can charge you with a crime. I don't know if and when any of that will get here. I hope not in my lifetime. I hope not in your lifetime. I hope not in my kids' or grandkids' lifetimes. But it is coming. And we have a responsibility to remain in the truth that's been given to us. He says the same. And then he says this, Commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So the three responsibilities of sonship. One is to receive. The first thing that your parents teach you is to listen. If they don't teach that effectively, they impair you from being able to develop for the rest of your life. If you don't learn how to listen, you can't learn anything else. The second is to remain. To take the things that have been communicated to us and to walk in them and to live in them and to preserve them. And the third is to relate these things to other people. This is not something that's spoken of as much today in our society. And I would expect part of it is just our economic and social situations and uh, part of it is probably the, the way society is structured and this and that. But there was at one time a great emphasis placed on the ability to pass on the future generations things. I was uh, studying a couple years ago my uh, ancestry. And I was telling Leah the other day, I said, uh, like a dummy, I didn't print all that out or write it all down. I should have. I, I told her I need to get in one of these ancestry websites again and try to dig all that up once again. Because in my family... Right now, unless, unless my uh, brother has kids, right now I've got a cousin who is a Weber. And he's the last male Weber. It's him and me and my brother. And that's it. And so my boys, and then I can't remember if my cousin has a son or not, but it's possible that right now walking the earth that my two boys are the last Webers from our Webers. There's other Webers. There's the grill Webers. I wish I've often thought about trying to see if I could legally drop a B off my name and get some of that grill money, but... Um, but they'll carry on the name. They'll carry on the, the, the lineage. Now, physically, that's, that's true, and we understand that that's paramount, that's important. There's a, there's a demographic winter in the West in these days. Um, and some of that is in relation to, you know, biological and, and all kinds of things, and then some of it just has to do with us living in a society where often it's more convenient to not uh, raise children. But let me say that spiritually speaking, Spiritually speaking, we have a responsibility to birth a new generation. Spiritually. Spiritually. I'm not talking about biologically. I'm saying spiritually, Christians ought to reproduce Christians. We ought to be carrying the gospel to the lost and sharing the gospel with them. And then, by the way, after they've been won to Christ, we ought to take these same truths that have been communicated to us and communicate it to them. If we're not doing that, if we're not reproducing spiritually ourselves in the life 
of others. It won't be long before our spiritual heritage and lineage will die away. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, somebody invested in your life. Now you need to go invest in somebody else's life. I don't know, but I I do understand that had Paul not thrust westward into Europe, probably most of us wouldn't be sitting here today. We're sitting here because somebody carried the gospel to somebody that carried the gospel to somebody that carried the gospel to somebody and if you used to go on, I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands or millions of times, but if you were to go down along through there somewhere, you'd find a preacher in Knoxville, Tennessee that preached the gospel to a 10-year-old boy. And I was one to Christ and I'm standing here today. And now we have part of our sonship to God is a responsibility to take that and pass it on spiritually to the next spiritual generation by reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all like to say we're a child of God. I do, man. I I mean, it's the thing I'm proudest of in my life is that God is my Father. But I wonder sometimes if we're living up to the calling of sonship that God's put on our life. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. Listen, the altar is open tonight. If if God spoke to your heart, I want you to come. You don't need to wait one, one moment. Father, bless this invitation. Pray that your people would get help from you tonight, that we'd yield unto you. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name.